Okay, are you back? I am. Sweet. I, I never left, as yeah. far as I know. No, I don't think you did. I think I did. Uh- Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan, uh, and I am only um, a little suffering from cabin fever. <laughs> just just a titch. Um, but I am joined today, as always, by my other co-host. Uh, I'm Pete Fromberg, and uh, last couple weekends I've been trying very hard to break out of cabin fever by... Going to socially distant and responsible places, not inside my house. Getting outside is so important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the weather has been so bad for it. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, lucky that I live both close to just natural greenery in in the city, but then also, um, you know, 45 minute to an hour long drive from like big old state parks. So there is the chance to like get out in, in nature and go hiking and stuff. Easier for me than for you, Martha, I know. Yeah, um, I do have to make a little bit more of an effort to get to the outside places. Um, And it's just been, it has been raining at unexpected intervals this weekend, which has made it hard. I don't know what the weather's been like for you guys, but the other day we had thunder that was so cacophonous (laughs) that I, it, it almost felt like a bomb going off, which these days is not as unlikely of a scenario <laughs> as I would like it to be. Right, right. Uh, yesterday was beautiful, but Friday it turned dark at about 4 p.m. and never got brighter, um, which just really takes it out of you. Yeah, it's it's rough. June. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> well, almost July. Yeah, I was gonna, June, <laughs> but now somehow it's almost <laughs> over? Come back! <laughs> um... So today we are going to be talking about what we have been reading and watching and consuming um, in order to better educate ourselves for the world that we live in, uh, in light of uh, how racial tension in the U.S. has really exploded, um, which I do not say as a way of indicating that this is a new phenomenon. It is not. Um, But as white people, and particularly as white educators, I think both Pete and I have been extremely cognizant um, of our positioning as people who can recommend materials to other people, um, people that should be kind of on top of resources that we can direct towards our um, fellow white people, all towards all towards the purpose of better understanding the country that we live in, better understanding how we got to where we are, and being better prepared to be um, allies. Although I will tell you and our listeners that the, the more I sit with the word ally, the less I like it, um, because it is starting to imply... Um, passive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> passive assistance um i i saw somebody the other day on social media advocating for the word accomplice <laughs> uh which better describes being an active participant in uh helping to improve the world for um people who need it and i'm, I'm glad you brought that up uh obviously this podcast is going to be focusing on the education angle because as a pop culture podcast 
uh, and also just inherently as a podcast, um, that is sort of the tools that we as as people talking to you and as a medium are best able to provide. Uh, however, education should be the beginning step, not the end step. So uh, using, uh, you know, uh, using these resources, using other resources that you might find, um, turn that into praxis, turn that into action, uh, whether that be, uh, you know, uh, however that might be, you know, done through you, whether it be through donating, um, actual community organizing, some other way, uh, calling people out in the workplace or in other places as needed. Um, this is the beginning step. And we just want to sort of flag the fact that this is a beginning, not an end. Uh, but at least it's a, a place to start. And I would also like to acknowledge that this is something that we as white people should have been doing. It, it should not take the amount of unrest and dissatisfaction that we are seeing now to get us to all pick up a book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I just want to acknowledge at the top that these are all things that we should be reading and consuming regardless of um, what is happening politically, that it is our uh, responsibility to understand where we come from and what is happening. <laughs> um, but anyway, taking all of that as writ, and before we get into uh, our reading lists as they were, um, let us first begin with something a little lighter before we get heavy. Uh, what has been stuck in your head this week, Pete? Um, so I have had an absolute embarrassment of riches since our last episode in terms of pop culture to consume. Um, Phoebe Bridgers came out with a new album. She is excellent if you're into sad indie music. And Haim just released their latest album, which they are excellent if you are into uh, rock music, uh, especially female-focused, uh, fronted uh, rock music. Um, and uh, the Dixie Chicks changed their name to Just the Chicks, and they've got a new album uh, either out or coming out. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about any of that, even though I just did, uh, because what has truly been stuck in my head for the past two weeks is Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, this is a Nickelodeon cartoon that came out in I think 2005 to 2009 um, and has recently been released on Netflix. I never watched it when it was originally out because it was on Nickelodeon and I was too old for that. Nickelodeon was for babies. Um, but uh, I've been watching it now and it's truly incredible. Just an excellent cartoon. Um, great escape right now. Um, fully developed world. Great actors. Good voice actors. Uh, uh, very. It's it's it, it grapples with heavy material in kid friendly ways, but also like has themes of imperialism and generational trauma and uh, things that are like always relevant, unfortunately, in America. Um, so a plus, highly recommend. Um, I can't believe you've never seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> like when it was coming out, it was like that classic, like oh, it's on Nickelodeon. It, I'm too old for that. Um, and then I just never saw it. Yeah, I watched it. Um in reruns in college when I had too much free time and access to cable that I wasn't paying for. Mm -hmm. um, it also has the best character redemption arc ever written in popular culture. Yeah. And we've... I will not be taking questions <laughs> at this time. <laughs> we kind of just got there. We're like halfway through season three right now. Oh. Um, which unfortunately means that it's rapidly coming to an end. And then I don't know what we're doing next. Cora. I don't know Legend if that's Cora. I haven't looked if that's on Netflix yet. Oh dang. That's see, that's the problem. Um, well, if it is, 
Yes. People will tell you people will tell you bad things about Korra. They are all lying. Korra is great. No, yeah. If um, if Korra is on Netflix, that is clearly the next thing we're doing. But um, if it's not, then it's a question mark. Fair. Um. So I have been watching. Okay. So season two of Doom Patrol just dropped or started releasing on. Um, HBO Max and also DCU, which was where the original first season aired. Uh, Doom Patrol is a superhero team-up show about a like D-list of bizarre off-brand superheroes yeah. from DC. Um, and I recently blitzed through the entirety of the first season. It's great. I love it. Alan Tudyk plays the villain. He's fantastic. Oh. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just, it is very, it has some of the most uh, rewarding emotional arcs for characters that I've ever seen. It has an incredibly diverse cast. Brendan Fraser is in it, and I always appreciate <laughs> it when he gets work. Is he um, the, the robot guy? Yes. Sweet. That's good casting. Yeah. Um, and Matt Bomer plays Negative Man, who is completely wrapped in bandages, which I think is hysterical. <laughs> um, but also there are so many flashbacks in the show that Brendan Fraser and Matt Bomer both get to be themselves in addition to being um, a robot and a bandage wrapped mummy guy. <laughs> right, right. Um, a, a being of pure energy who looks like a Claude Rains' Invisible Man. Uh, yes and no. The being of pure energy kind of inhabits uh, Matt Bomer's body. They are two separate people. Right. Um, but yeah, it's... And then Timothy Dalton plays the Professor X-type <laughs> character who brings them all together and teaches them how to, like, be the best... Um, be the best versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um and my my personally personally my favorite character is uh, Rita Farr, who is an actress from the 1950s who gets infected by this like chemical swamp chemical which causes her to sort of melt um, when she is emotionally distressed, <laughs> which is something that I feel a lot of uh, <laughs> affinity for. Um, she experiences a great deal of body dysmorphia because of this, and about halfway through the first season adopts this mantra that she uses to calm herself down when she needs to like reform um which is the person who is breathing is me um which makes me cry whenever i think about it because it is like the most centering thing that mm -hmm. i could conceive of i don't know it's it's very weird uh alan tudyk is a fourth wall breaking supervillain who frequently talks directly to the audience about the fact that he is in a tv show okay um, i i was going to ask like i've i've read um grant morrison's the, the first trade paperback of grant morrison's run on doom patrol and like that is a it, partly because it's Morrison, but partly because it's Doom Patrol. It's, like, deeply weird. Eventually they fight, like, the Brotherhood of Dada or something, which is, like, I'm all on board for that. Um, so I was wondering if the show goes in similar directions. Like, I think there's a character in his run who's, like, a living street. Danny the Street yes. is the best. Yes, there we go. Good, <laughs> so he's in the show. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Danny the Street is a gender-neutral um, teleporting street who provides a home to... Uh, 
misfit um misfit people looking for a place to belong it's fabulous um <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's great um but I'm, I'm glad they didn't like sand down the weirdness no no it is it is very weird it is very queer it is um i think a lot of a lot of components that could have felt very disjointed um, and end up kind of making something ultimately very beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I will be interested to see if it can keep it up for a second season. Oh, because the second season is dropped, but you've only finished the first season. I just finished the first season. Um, the second the second season just started airing. Oh, okay. They're doing like a weekly situation. Yeah, it's on HBO. Okay. Um. But yeah. Cool. Check out Doom Patrol and watch my cranky robot uncle. <laughs> uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to tell you all about what we have been reading and watching uh, to further our own racial awareness education. So Pete and I are both educators in some capacity. Um, I am a librarian. Uh, Pete is a teacher and curriculum architect. Uh, and as Ooh, I like such, architect. I think he and I'm I are going to start using that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had a moment where I was like, wait, how does he describe what he does right now? And that seemed like an appropriate, <laughs> that seemed like appropriate terminology. Please feel free to correct me if it is not what you would use. Usually I'd say editor, um, but architect sounds great. Awesome. Change your business cards. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, But so he and I are both in a position where we can be recommending materials to other people. uh, And that also means that we need to be on top of what we are consuming ourselves, in addition to wanting to be responsible citizens of the world that we live in. Uh, So we decided to take this opportunity to let you guys know what we have been reading to help educate ourselves, uh, what we have kind of on deck uh, that we haven't started yet, but will be consuming. Uh, and hopefully there are some recommendations in here that you can take into your own lives to check out. Um, I know for myself, I wanted to stay away from some of the titles that I have just seen um, pop up repeatedly places. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I would absolutely recommend uh, stamped by Ibram X. Hendy and Jason Reynolds, but I, I think that you've probably heard that title, so I didn't want to um, retread ground that other people are already uh, kind of covering. Um, so the past couple of weeks, um, I have found myself trying to balance out like educational nonfiction and fiction um by black creators um because i also wanted to make sure that i was consuming art uh by black creators that did not just focus on 
the pain and trauma of being black in America, which is important to recognize, but also for the sake of normalizing a black presence in media, um, I do think that we should all be uh, consuming, you know, stuff where the heroes get to be black and just, you know, experience all the stuff that we have consumed white people experiencing for our entire lives. Mm-hmm. Preface over. <laughs> Uh, The first book I'm going to tell you guys about is March, a trilogy of graphic novels by Congressman John Lewis, uh, which is autobiographical about his participation and key role in the civil rights movement. Um, It is three uh, three books that are all available on Hoopla if your uh, library subscribes to those. Um, They they go down real easy uh, because they're graphic novels, but also the material in them is extremely challenging. Um, March Volume 3 won the Prince Award in 2017, because the last volume was published in 2016. Uh, the Prince Award is like the, the Caldecott of the Newbery Medal for young adult nonfiction. And this was very much a Return of the King type situation where it was given to the third book, but really was recognizing the achievement of all three. Um, yeah, it, I, I found it to be a really good place to start because it gives you sort of an overview of the civil rights movement in America and also the life, uh, you know, a look at a light, a look at the life of um, an extremely influential and powerful individual in the uh events of the civil rights movement, who is still with us and still working uh, today. Um, Lewis participated in the Selma, Alabama marches. Um, he, you know, he, he talks about his experience in all of the big key events uh, during the civil rights movement. So that was where I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next book that I want to talk about is Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis, uh, which is one that I just started, so I'm um, only now kind of getting to dig into. Um, but it draws a lot of parallels um, between uh, the events in Ferguson, um, unrest in Palestine, and how uh how a movement kind of begins mm-hmm. um uh coming at it from the the angle of uh like state terror um mm-hmm. as an influence against movements for freedom um it has an intersectional angle to it that i in enjoying is the wrong word but it appreciate it has an intersectional angle to it that i appreciate um, it is not an easy read. Um, this yeah. is one that I would, if you if you decide to delve into it, um, give yourself space to really uh, chew on it. Um, and, and like Lewis, Angela Davis has been, you know, part of the struggle for, Jesus, 40 years, 50 years. Um, yeah, and she, she touches on 
Um, she actually is a great one if you want to contextualize our call to defund the police. Um, she talks about abolishing the prison system mm -hmm. and the kind of systemic racism that has been built into our justice system um, and also has uh, it centers um, black feminism in addition to uh, like she, she centers the importance of black feminism to the movement of black lives matter, mm, um, mm -hmm. which was founded by black women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is an important thing for all of us to remember. Yeah. Um, and also reminds us that our work is never done. Um, yeah. You know, the, the title of the book is, is sort of a <laughs> clarion call for that. Um, uh, and then the, uh, last couple books I'm going to talk about are fictional. Um, I just started for a book club, uh, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, which won the uh, Booker Prize in 2019. Um, it is a collection of sort of essay type chapters um, about a group of black women in the UK. Hmm. And it so the, the first chunk is about the, the first chapter is about a woman. The second one is about her daughter and the third one is about her friend. And then the next chunk of chapters is about a different group of interconnected women um, about, you know, being black and being British and being women um, during the like 60s, 70s, 80s up through now. Hmm. Um, it is, I think all of the characters so far are queer in some fashion. So it is also intersectional in that it's not just talking about um, black women, but black queer women and their experiences. Um, I am enjoying the uh, point of view of um, outside of the US. I, 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 am not, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. I am not letting America off the hook. Um, but I, I do think it is important to remember that, uh, the UK is extremely racist. <laughs> yeah. The, the UK's history with race is different than America's, but they have a lot of the sim of similar problems. Um, yes. and then, uh, to tack onto that also, uh, uh, like Indian British, um, race mm -hmm. issues as well. Um, well, and, um, Evaristo definitely delves into, uh, Britain's colonial history with Africa and the Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, as well as India, to um, to a certain extent as well, um, and then it is also digging into class distinctions. Um, it again, I think intersectional is going to be one of our keywords for this episode, <laughs> um, but it, it shows the intersection of all of these different uh, different areas areas and um is written in a really digestible fashion i would mm. say mm -hmm. it's almost poetic the way that it is written there's very little um punctuation there's very little capitalization hmm. um stream, so of, it stream flows, of thought e or yeah it flows okay. in a really lyrical way um and kind of tricks you into digesting these pretty crunchy uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's another one that I'm not done yet, but I am enjoying and I am eager to see uh, what the kind of, how she, how she ties it up at the end. If she chooses to tie it up, it, it could go either way, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I recently finished The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin, uh, which I think Pete mentioned as his, uh, stuck in his head a bit a bit ago. I certainly did before all, it was during quarantine, but before George Floyd. Yeah, um, but again, normalize black people in science fiction and fantasy. Um, Jemison is a fantastic writer. Uh, she writes real weird stuff that I love. Um, mm-hmm. And the city we became is about New York City, which is um, an incredibly diverse city that I think gets portrayed as being extremely white and middle class a lot in popular culture. Or, or white so and it was rich. Very, yeah, or white and rich. Um, it's like people only care about the Upper <clears throat> East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, and The City We Became is about all of the boroughs that make up New York City and are inhabited by immigrants and poor people and artists and all of these different things. Um, uh, I, I will yeah. say uh, this this book gave me a great mental map of New York City, uh, which is actually very, yeah. very useful now. Uh, my youngest brother moved to New York back in January, which... Um, was unfortunate for him because he was all excited to, you know, be in New York City and then two months later couldn't do anything. Um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, but he lives in Bed-Stuy and just like having the sense of like, I'm like, I've heard of all these places. I've heard of the Bronx. I've heard of Brooklyn, Queens, whatever. But I don't, I didn't have a good mental map of where things were or like what they, what they were. Um, and the city we became really sort of helped both spatially and psychically sort of put those all the various pieces together yes um the the quick the quick tagline of the city we became is it is about when a city develops so much personality that it actually manifests as a person um and new york city because it is made up of five very individualistic boroughs manifests as six people uh one for each borough and then one for new york city proper um and then there's a bunch of other wacky sci-fi stuff that I won't get into because honestly, I got to the twist at the end and was <laughs> so happy yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I found it delightful. Uh, the last book I'm going to talk to you about is one that I'm listening to on audio called The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Uh, Colson Whitehead wrote the magical realism book about the Underground Railroad a few years ago, hmm. which I would like to read, have not yet. yet. Um but the Nickel Boys is about a reform school in Jim Crow era Florida uh, and the boys who are sent there and how they are abused um, during their time there and what happens to them as a result of the abuse and trauma that they suffer uh, while they're at the school. It is not happy. <laughs> um, it takes place during we have we have the timeline of um our main characters elwood and jack their time at the school during the 60s uh or not 60s earlier than that no 60s 60s um and then during the 2010s when the school actually begins to get investigated and all of its secrets get unearthed um going back and forth between those two timelines uh so that's where I'm at. <laughs> um, 
Whitehead is a speculative fiction author who deals primarily in uh, racially charged moments of United States history. Hmm. I think mm-hmm. could be fair to say. I mean, you you mentioned a magical although, realism underground railroad. Yes, so. although he did also write a zombie book, which I am excited to hmm. experience. <laughs> um, but yeah, Nickel Boys came out last year. It's won a whole bunch of different book awards, uh, and is a really compelling audio listen. I'm I'm really glad that you had some uh, fiction on this list. Uh, my list is almost, in, I think it is entirely nonfiction, um, but sort of centering and, and promoting fiction. And as you said, like fiction where that doesn't just focus on black pain and black trauma. Um, well, and I, I have seen it. So as a, as a librarian, I read a lot of book reviews um, and I try to make sure that I am reading and being exposed to reviews and criticisms by non-white reviewers, because mm-hmm. I think that the world of book reviews, the world of book reviewing is like everything has a white problem. Um, and I appreciate hearing um, voices, hearing criticism and analysis of books that are by and for people of color, I I think it is valuable to read criticism that is also by people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't feel great about centering a white opinion on something that is, you know, by a BIPOC author. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the criticisms that comes up about the publishing world is that the stuff that is written by authors of color tends to center um, pain and trauma and suffering. And it's important that we read books and watch consume media that shows people of color just being people. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to, we don't have to only consume stuff that is about pain because then we only think of minority people, then we only think of minority populations as being in pain and being traumatic and suffering. Yeah. And that the way to help normalize the production and consumption of this kind of media is to also champion stories um, where that is not the focus. So like watch rom-coms about black people, read fluffy YA about black people, um, you know, read stuff where they get to be the superheroes, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which somewhat ties into our, our next week's topic, which you'll have to listen to the end of this episode <laughs> to find out what it is. Um, but anyway, that's the end of my list. Um, I have talked for long enough. <laughs> I think it is uh, your turn, Pete. All right. Uh, so the thing that I am currently reading and which is sort of like foregrounding what I'm, I'm currently doing is called uh, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too, Reality Pedagogy and Urban Education by Christopher Emden. Uh, Emden is a education professor, um, former teacher, African-American man uh, who grew up in the hood and, uh, you know, now teaches in the Ivy Leagues. Um, this book, I so I picked it up partly because uh, I have a lot of friends who are educators. Uh, many of them are currently reading it. I write curriculum now. Um, and I was, I, I picked this up partly to, you know, be part of the conversation around it, but then also partly to see if it had anything, um, that could maybe help, uh, the curriculum development side, sort of in the, um, uh, Gloria Lanston Billings culturally responsive pedagogy sort of style. Um, 
I'm about halfway through the book now. It doesn't, it, it's very classroom focused. So I have a feeling that by the end of this book, it's not going to be as useful for me right now in the year 2020. Um, however, it is causing me to deeply dissect and grapple with uh, the time I did spend in the classroom. Um, he, I mean, basically the, the idea of the book is that the current way, especially urban education is designed, um, it, it is built upon structures that force uh, what, whom he calls neo-indigenous students, which is basically uh, black and brown students uh, in, in urban areas, um, to have to suppress integral parts of themselves in order to fit into a effectively white mold um, that is being forced on them. Uh, and so what can educators in the classroom and in schools do to allow students to flourish as their own selves rather than as, uh, you know, r rather than forcing them and breaking them to fit into a white mold um, without at the same time, you know, uh, uh, teaching less, being, being a less effective teacher. So it's like how to be a more effective teacher well, which is both well also and in order to be um allowing students to to be themselves and flourish as themselves um very well like it's it's very easy to to read um there are areas where i'm thoughtfully pushing back on what he's saying wondering how it would apply um he talks about it in terms of middle school and high school i'm having a hard time in places envisioning it in a middle school setting especially like sixth grade like eighth grade i think you could do some of what he's doing um, a little more cautious about sixth grade, definitely more cautious as you get younger about how effective some of the strategies would be, um, simply because they require a lot of uh, self-reflection and self-insight from students, which I just uh, don't know if a second grader would have, <laughs> you know, um, because they're still learning to sort of do that. Um, but I, I would say right now that anyone who's teaching anywhere and especially people who are teaching in urban areas uh it's a great book to read and at least grapple with um and you know taking some of the ideas if not all of the ideas i think is is definitely an excellent tool and would probably be useful even for non-urban educators have you read or are you aware of why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria yes okay that was that was what i was thinking about while you were Mm -hmm. talking about that one um that, that's which, a bit more of like a sociological it is yeah um but it it does a lot of framing or it, it kind of frames a lot of the questions around those school dynamics um, right right yeah yeah th this is much more like praxis oriented um he he starts off the book with sort of the the intellectual framework he's using and sort of like the the reason for why he's using it but then most of the the guts of the book are actual practical things that educators can be doing and sort of like the reason why um so that like in in that sense i'm very much enjoying it as it's not just a theory book it's a like here's how you would go about doing this book um but also a theory interspersed sure. so yeah um the next thing is uh i, re I listened to this on audiobook which i would highly recommend uh Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me. Um this uh is a book that he wrote back in 2015. Um it's structured as a letter to his teenage son and it effectively just explains sort of his his life and African 
American history and American history through the lens of, uh, you know, the African-American lived experience, uh, the violence that American history and American society has done to people of color, um, you know, his, his own youth growing up, um, what he hopes for in the future. Um, it's incredibly powerful, incredibly moving. Coates is an amazing speaker, which is why I would recommend the audiobook. He narrates his own book. Um, and hearing, like, his words in his voice is very powerful. Um, I'm not sure if you've listened to or read this yet. Coates is... I haven't yet. Um, Coates is like a multimedia yeah. savant. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he writes fiction, he writes nonfiction, he writes comics. Mm -hmm. He's Got a great run on Black Panther. Mm hmm Yeah. Um, um I I would I would highly recommend this one for your next audiobook. Uh it is obviously very heavy, so um depending on <laughs> depending I, so on where you're I, at on I that one. To, I'm listening to you and I both describe things as being easy reads or being heavy reads, and I think that we should stop doing that. Mm, that's fair. Um, I I'm wondering I when I, I should say so like I'm I, going through some self well I'm going through some self criticism right now because all of these topics are topics that I don't think should be easy, and it it almost feels like at least personally I don't want to be like and this one is okay for you because it's an easy read I don't want to make light I guess of the material that we're talking about by like soothing the feelings of people that I think should be reading them right right and, and i i should say i i described for white folks who teach in the hood as an easy read um it's easy in the sense that it is uh easy to digest like it's not an academic like it's academic but it doesn't read academically it's very easy to um understand you know his ideas and, and envision how to implement them it's been a very okay. challenging read for me because it's causing me to um like dissect and analyze and, and self-reflect on the time i spent in the classroom um, but as a, like, it is not a dense academic tome. It is, mm -hmm. it is written, um, conversationally, which makes it gotcha. easy to, easy to process or e easy to consume and then challenging to process and actuate on. Got it. Yeah. Um, Coates is, is, I guess, similar in the sense that it is written conversationally. It's a letter to his son. Um, so it is. You know, it is not a dense academic text, but it is a a challenging read um, on the emotional level. Um, sure. Which it probably as it should be. Um, all right. Uh, next up, I've got the uh, documentary 13th by Ava DuVernay, which I think was a Netflix original documentary. Um, yes. Cool. And it's certainly available on Netflix. Um, this... Uh, stems from a lot of the research done in Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, uh, which is an excellent book that I would highly recommend as well. Um, but if you, you know, if you've only got time for one, 13th is, a, you know, two-hour documentary, so it will just take less time to read than The, the New Jim Crow. Um, it's basically looking at the way that the modern criminal justice system uh, extends slavery. Um uh, 13, uh, the title comes from the 13th Amendment, with abolished slavery, uh, except for uh, punishment for conviction of a crime. 
Um, and since the 13th Amendment was passed uh, throughout the United States, not just in the South, um, prison and, and the, the penal system, the carceral state of America, has been used to do a lot of the control, oppression, and subjugation that was previously done by slavery. Um, not just during, like, this was definitely true during Jim Crow, but it's still true now. Um, one of the reasons, arguably, we have the largest prison population in the world is because we use it to, uh, control and repress, uh, people of color. Um, still, there's a lot, like, in America today, there's a lot of, many things are made by unpaid or effectively unpaid prison laborers, which, um, feels very similar to slave labor. Uh, especially when you consider that many people are in jail for uh, things that arguably they should not be in jail for. Um, it is, I mean, Duvernay is a fantastic director. This is a, a fantastic documentary. Uh, the New Jim Crow is a fantastic book. I would highly recommend either of them. I have not yet watched The 13th, although it's on, it's sitting in my Netflix list just mm -hmm. because that is, I know, a piece that is going to demand 100% of my attention. Yes. And you will notice that everything that I talked about up above was books mm -hmm. um, because my attention capacity for viewing things has not been great. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been saving it for when I feel like I can devote um, the attention to it that it deserves. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I had read The New Jim Crow a couple of years ago, probably five years ago at this point. Um, so when I started watching 13th, I sort of thought, like, I, I know the, the premise, I know the ideas behind it. I can probably watch this while, like, cooking dinner, doing dishes, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. would, would not recommend. Uh, <laughs> I, I basically had to just stop watching it for then and devote time to actually watch it. Um, so, yeah, this is definitely a full attention documentary, not a partial attention documentary, even if you already know the... Um, you know, the thesis. Mm -hmm. um, final thing is a podcast. Uh, we're going back to Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, Ezra Klein is a uh, podcast interviewer for uh, Vox Media. Um, on June 3rd, he came out with an interview with Coates, which was exceptional. Um, Klein, I would argue, is maybe the best uh, interviewer of of the current like generation of interviewers he asks deep and insightful questions and gives his guests plenty of room to respond um they're always all of his show, uh, shows are, are very deep thoughtful and insightful and when paired with Coates who is one of the best thinkers of our generation um it just is a very deep challenging and powerful interview um coming out on June 3rd so it's about a month old but they are talking post-George uh, Floyd during the beginning of the uprisings. Um, and they're grappling with a lot of powerful ideas, including the idea of nonviolence and how nonviolence is not passive resistance. It is active resistance. Um, it's just simply nonviolent active resistance. Um, and thinking about the... Um, not the paradox, the... Uh, hypocrisy of of the state basically to demand nonviolence from those least capable of creating violence. Um, you know the the idea that like protest is viewed as illegitimate if it's not quote unquote peaceful protests, um, but then policing is entirely legitimate if it is violent policing. Um, even even at you know like there's there's the constant arguments about like 
you know, why aren't these protests just peaceful? Why aren't they doing what the cops say? It's like, if they're doing what the cops say, then that's not nonviolence. Like, nonviolence is active resistance mm-hmm. in nonviolent ways. Um, so there, there's a lot of, a lot of talk around that, um, which I think is very useful to sort of critique and analyze right now. The, the idea that, that struck with me a lot is like the, like I said, the hypocrisy of the state demanding nonviolence from those least able to cause violence and, uh, endorsing and condoning violence from those with the most ability to cause violence. Um, Mm -hmm. and how we could envision a world where maybe that's not true or the opposite not the opposite, but where the state itself is held to its own high standard of a call for nonviolence. Um, also talks a lot about like the role of policing. Um, why, <laughs> uh, why is it that a five-year-old can like, can a- every five-year-old in America knows the three digits to call to, uh, send an armed person anywhere. Uh, but grownups don't know the number to call if someone is having a mental health crisis. Um, and just how how we've structured our our first responder and policing sort of systems and how we could structure them differently. Lots going on on it, but I... I, I was going to say, that was very comprehensive and I don't really have anything to add. Right, yeah, th- there's a lot going on. I would just say it, it is... I, I thoroughly recommend Ezra Klein's podcast in general, and I would... Uh, th- this is a required listening episode for sort of anyone right now who wants to do deeper deeper thought work on a lot of the sort of background radiation of what's happening. So uh, I know that we, uh, this is what we've been currently consuming, but we have a lot that is sort of, (laughs) you've described as on deck, what we're, we're going to be reading as, as time goes forward and we finish up this stuff. Yeah. um, So I have holds on a couple of things that haven't come in yet. And so I obviously haven't had a chance to read them. Um, And, the the kind of chunker of a nonfiction. So you recommended to me, I think, off the air a while ago, "Fall of the House of Dixie" by Bruce Levine, who mm-hmm. I believe was a professor of yours yeah. in college. Yeah, had him at U of I. Yeah, so that's one that I want to read um, because I think understanding uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction um, and all of that is pretty key to establishing how our history has progressed from there. Um, And I really like the idea of that story being told through the use of primary documents. Um, So that, that is one that I have queued up. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I I read that book a few years ago and would definitely recommend it. uh, Also the warmth of other sons by Isabel Wilkerson, which is about, where did it go? Uh, which is about the Great Migration and the Second Great Migration um, of African Americans out of the South uh, from 1915 to 1970. Um, This is another one that uh, is told through a lot of um, primary documents. Uh, It kind of intertwines uh, the biographies of three different people, um, a sharecropper's wife, an agricultural worker in uh, New York City and a doctor, um, all of whom left different areas of the South and moved to, um, you know, more quote unquote liberal uh, parts of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one is Tanahisi Coates' uh, foray into speculative fiction writing, uh, The Water Dancer. Um, 
which came out last year uh, and is a sort of sci-fi fantasy book um, about a uh, a man who's born into slavery during the antebellum South on a tobacco plantation in Virginia um, and his inherent talent for finding water hmm. uh, and his escape from slavery and where his uh, life kind of goes from there, um, how he becomes involved in the Underground Railroad and uh, yeah, it's it's spec fic, so it's kind of sci-fi fantasy. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one because Coates is a great writer. Yeah. And I am a sci-fi fantasy girl. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I, uh, am, uh, dumb, and so the three things I have on deck are all heavy nonfiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to some of the homeworks that we have for next episode because it will force me to, uh, not read heavy nonfiction, uh, for a little bit. Um, however, I am looking forward to all three of these. Um, the first one is, uh, The End of Policing by Alex S. I think it's Vital, could be Vitali. Um, it's been, I, I think it's, it's been getting a lot of buzz recently, especially now, um, envisioning a, a basically how we could structure society without police. I have a feeling that I'm going to uh, agree with and take away a lot from this book, but I'm also not going to be 100% sold, um, but I'm excited to, to give it a try and sort of grapple with it. Um, I've, o over the past decade, I've consumed books like Rise of the Warrior Cop, um, and the new Jim Crow and whatnot, which really does question um, what what the heck is wrong with America vis-a-vis -vis how we view police and policing. Um, and so the, the maximalist argument against it, I think, is a good place to sort of continue that education there. Um, next, I have uh, The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921 by Tim Madigan. Um, this is obviously just the history of the Tulsa Race a history of the Tulsa race riot of 1921. Uh, not a huge fan of the term race riot, prefer race massacre because that's really what it was. Um, obviously, this is a thing that many people found out about following um, Watchmen last year. I like, I am a, a history major. I went to a, uh, you know, we both went to a liberal high school where I did the top track history stuff. Uh, my AP American history to teacher was an old SDS lefty from the 60s. Um, and I did not learn about the Tulsa Race Massacre until probably 2016, 2017, 2018, that, that era. Um, which is absolutely... I am, one of the, I am one of the basic people who learned about it from watching Watchmen. Sure. I... And like like you went to, to OPRF, obviously, uh, but then you didn't go on to have a history decree and like teach social studies um it is an absolute indictment on american education that it is something that that is not just part of the curriculum um and i know very little about it other than the broad strokes that we all learned when we started wikiing it um following watchmen uh so i'm excited to sort of sink my teeth into this one and and do a deeper dive on it um the final book is a book that i have had on my bookshelf for years and just have not gotten around to reading um it's the selma of the north by patrick t uh patrick d jones uh it's about race and segregation in milwaukee uh, the city i live in during the civil rights era um milwaukee 
continues to be one of the most segregated, if not the most segregated city in the United States, has terrible uh, health and uh, socioeconomic outcomes for African Americans, um, possibly, again, the worst in the country um, in comparison to, to their white neighbors. Um, and during the civil rights era, there were horrible race riots in Milwaukee um, uh, as African-Americans tried to live in the city, move to other neighborhoods. Uh, it, the, the segregation was deep. Um, the longest sustained protest, I think, in the country was in Milwaukee, um, uh, just over, over fair housing, fair education, all the rest of it. Um, and it's it's the kind of thing that again isn't taught, especially in the north, where you know we look at at Birmingham, we look at uh, you know Selma, um, places in the deep south that are far enough away from us Yankees that it's like ah, but that's a southern problem. Um, but it's not just a southern problem; it's a northern problem too. Um, so uh, yeah, this is a book that I've, I've had on my shelf for a while, and this is now the inciting event to get me to actually read it. Yeah, would love to hear what you think of it. Yeah. I think that those of us who do not live in the South tend to be annoyingly superior about mm -hmm. how things are better not in the South. And that's just not true. Yeah. I mean, it is in some respects, but I think, yeah, those of us who, who live in the Midwest and on the East Coast and on the West Coast need to, uh, and hopefully are, Doing some self-reflection. Yes, yes. So next week, or next episode, we are going to be continuing this conversation in a slightly different format um, by talking about Afrofuturism as an artistic movement. Um, our, our homework... Uh, do we want to define that now or just save that for the episode? Let's save that for the episode. <laughs> okay. Um, so we've got a couple of different pieces of homework for you for this, um, including, first off, the essay Black to the Future by Mark Derry, um, which we will link to in the show notes um, to get a definition and a sense of what we are going to be talking about. Yeah, that's going to be uh, our intellectual grounding for the, uh, the actual Afrofuturist works that we're then going to be consuming. Correct. Uh, and then I have selected the movie Brown Girl Begins, directed by Sharon Lewis, which is currently streaming on Hulu. Uh, and also peripherally, uh, Pete and I both agreed that we could do a book for this topic as well. Um, so we are going to be reading Dawn by Octavia Butler, the first in her Xenogenesis trilogy. Uh, which I am very excited for because I've been meaning to read Butler for a decade, and now I get to. Uh, meanwhile, I'm assigning, I'm ostensibly assigning The Arc Android by Janelle Monet. That is the first of her, um, Android series of albums, I guess. Um, but honestly, any of her big three albums, uh, The Arc Android, Electric Lady, or her most recent Dirty Computer are all Afrofuturist pop music. Um, you should listen to all of them. Uh, but the official homework is Arc Android. Uh, but until then, you can uh, find our show on social media. Uh, we are at all the places at DYDYH Podcast. 
Um, you can find us on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework? If you just plug that into the search bar, you'll get there eventually. Um, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com and you can follow us individually. Uh, you can find me online um, on Twitter and Instagram at Magical Martha. Uh, and you can read my newly resurrected newsletter, uh, which comes out whenever I feel like it, uh, at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking about politics and pop culture. Uh, you can also listen to the other podcast that I do that updates on the same feed on Alternating Wednesdays called Love Ya, where Pete's wife, Marin and I watch a teen-centered uh, movie and then that is easily available on a streaming service and then talk about it. Our next, uh, next foray that we will be discussing is A Wrinkle in Time, which also intersects uh, <laughs> with our Afrofuturism theme uh, quite nicely. Um, I believe that is all that we have for you this episode. Yeah, I think uh, that's it. Yep. Thank you for listening. Enjoy doing your homework. Uh, and that's going to be a class dismissed. Cool. Sweet. All right. Well, have fun uh, being outside and, and being around trees and stuff. I will. Ah, oh, shoot. I was going to plug the 100 free comics from Marvel. That's okay. I'll tweet about it. Okay. Um. <laughs>